podcast for St. Peter's Church in West Harrow. And he's really, really skilled in this area and he's been speaking um, nationally about this issue. So there are some flyers tonight available on the balcony for you to take and give uh, to a friend if you'd like to. Um, also, if you don't normally go to church, we've made sure that these events are suitable for you. I do want to make sure you feel really, really comfortable. Uh, please don't stand on ceremony. It's lovely to have you uh, at St. Peter's Church. We want to warmly welcome you and you make you feel that you're very much part of the family. So um, do relax. Help yourself to coffee and refreshments at any point uh, during uh, this evening. I'd be much happier if you went and got a strong coffee and then fell asleep on the chair. So if you feel like that's going to happen to you, then don't be at all embarrassed about heading up and getting a refill. If you need the loose, you can pop out the right-hand door and down these back stairs or just come back down the stairs that you came up and just along the bottom corridor on the right-hand side, you'll find the facilities there. And do feel free to come and go at any point during this evening. Um, I'm going to um, sort of introduce tonight with a, a little video, and um, this, was, this was shot about um, coming on quite uh, about five or six years ago now. I think five, five or six, yeah, about five or six years ago. So I look a little younger, a few less um, stress marks on my face and a few less wrinkles. Um, but it, it tells you a little bit of um, my, my kind of entrance into the work of Mind and Soul, which is our mental and emotional health ministry. It gives you a little picture into um, that story that saves me retelling uh, that to you in a in more straightforward way. So why don't you watch this clip? Well, I got involved in Mind and Soul, um, I guess about three years ago now, and I'd had some tough experiences following the London bombings. I just got really stressed out. I had something called post-traumatic stress disorder, um, and I've been really involved in the rescue effort around Edgware Road Station. But three months after that, I sort of, the emotions of the day kind of caught up with me and then I got really stressed out. I mean, I'm a kind of, uh, well, I like to think of myself as some sort of rough and tough sportsman, you know, and pretty robust. And um, the whole idea of kind of, you know, being very tearful or being very anxious um, wasn't something that was really on my agenda. I just thought that um, some emotional health, stuff like that, that's just, that's for people who aren't, you know, very stable rather than people who maybe feel quite confident about who they are and who God's made them. And Rob said, as a consultant psychiatrist, do you feel a lot of stigma in the church about mental or emotional health? And I said, yes. And he said, well, I feel a lot of stigma about being a Christian in, men, in the mental health services. So that's where we kind of got together. And the idea was that we would bring the two ends of um, that together. So we would support mental health professionals who were Christians, and we would support Christians who were struggling with emotional and mental health issues. And then we would affect the church for change on both levels and that's that's really where where things really began i guess in the form that they are now in your average christian church today i'm not really sure it's something that is talked about you know i don't know when you heard your last sermon on depression for example um it's that the, the churches often have maybe a couple of people who they look after who are obviously mentally ill but do they really include them in the fellowship and then they also have maybe some people who actually struggle with depression or eating disorders but can't talk about it and they suffer in silence and everyone thinks everything's fine but in actual fact it's not the mentality is really interesting i mean we we would go to the doctor about any physical ailment yet um often in church any sort of sense that you might go to see the doctor about an emotional mental health issue is is, uh, is, off, is sometimes sort of creates a level of discomfort and using mental health services where people are struggling with more um, significant or enduring mental health issues um, 
then often, yeah, they, they do feel a sense of being ostracized from the church. At the moment, there's a stigma between mental health and Christianity. And we want to create a proper interface, a discussion, a, a communication between mental health professionals and church professionals. We want the churches to actually to talk to the psychiatrists, the nurses, the doctors, the social workers, so that actually they know what each other are doing. So they can actually seriously think about the whole need of the individual, the emotional need, the psychological need, and the spiritual need. Far too long, we've had a gap. Great, oops, thank you. Um, that just maybe just gives you a little outline of the work that I do more broadly, and I hope that, that, that you can see that the work that we do also has um, some credentials behind it in terms of the psychological foundations of it, um, but also that I have a, a genuine story of wrestling with anxiety and um, an embodiment of that uh, here today. I'm not someone who has um, got a sort of impervious personality and is here to sort of deliver something to people who are fragile I'm actually someone who is fragile who has learned many things along the road and wants to share some of those with you. Now um, you might feel slightly uncomfortable with some of the terminology in the video in terms of you might find it uncomfortable to be categorized in any way uh, under the titling of mental health. I just want to sort of clarify that on one level and just say to you all that, that I believe that, as Jonathan said so clearly there, that we are, uh, we are mind, uh, body, and spirit, and that those three parts of ourselves are fully integrated and need attention and care at all times. That many, many people struggle with worry in a long term, but some subclinical level. Uh, so many, many people don't actually ever develop what we call an anxiety disorder, and they may never seek any treatment uh, or, any, or even disclose to anyone that they're struggling with worry. And that's why we think worry is a, a particularly pernicious and uncomfortable disorder to deal with. It doesn't mean that you're mentally unwell, but it doesn't mean that you might be mentally distressed a lot of the time. And so what we're going to be doing this evening is actually trying to help you to gain a little bit more freedom uh, from worry. And I want you to uh, kind of engage in some exercises as we do this. I have promised some people who struggle with specific anxieties that we're not going to do a lot of group work today because that would have prohibited them from even being here. So I do I hope you appreciate that there might be a moment where we might um, turn to a neighbour. If you don't feel comfortable at that point, then please don't feel the need to turn to any neighbours. Tonight you don't need to disclose anything about yourself, but I do want you to feel relaxed first and foremost as, as we move through some material. Just to let you know as well that um, I have written a book uh, with Rob um, called The Worry Book, and I've got no interest in making any money out of it or making any money out of this evening. Therefore, if you want a book, you can take a book for free tonight. Okay? If you want to make a donation for what the book costs, I've suggested that it cost around £7. If you can't afford that and you just want to take a book, there might be someone who's happy to pay £10 for a book and let you, uh, you know, and, and therefore we'll have a sort of egalitarian approach to the books tonight. But I'd much rather, if you were struggling tonight, that you took a book and you just walked away with that book with our blessing and, and that you didn't feel uh, the need that there were any sort of costs attached. So do, if that's you, just go right ahead. You will be able to uh, glean a little bit more from the book. Equally, if you don't like books... Uh, there's a lot more information on the website which you can access for free and you can get more talks and podcasts about uh, worry if you'd like to use them. Great. Okay. Gordon, can you just turn my game down a little bit? I feel a tiny bit on the echoey side. 
I don't want to frighten anyone with a booming voice. <laughs> okay, thank you. Right, I want you to think for a minute. Let's all get uh, warmed up. I want you all to start thinking about your toes. So everyone, if you just would wiggle your toes in your shoes to start with. Maybe you want to put your feet on the floor. How are they feeling tonight? Good, I hope. Not too cold. Not too hot. Not too sweaty. Good. Okay, you've had a good think about your toes. Now, if you think about your toes individually, toes are quite different to fingers. If you try and wiggle your toes, it adds a little bit more challenge to this. So try and, you might need to close your eyes to do this. But if you want to close your eyes, just think about wiggling your toes. Start with your big toe. It's getting increasingly difficult now with your next big toe. Now go down the scale towards wiggling your extremely small toes without moving your big toes. It's getting particularly challenging right now. Okay, it's hard to do. But actually, open your eyes again. What you're thinking about there is you're thinking about your toes. And that's obviously quite straightforward because you can operate your toes objectively. You know, even though it's hard to operate those smaller toes, you can operate the toes that you have objectively because your toes aren't the center of control for themselves. Your brain is the center of control for your toes. Now, I want you to all start thinking about your brain. So close your eyes again. Think about your brain. Start wobbling your frontal lobe if you can. Just wobble that now. Good. Okay. Left and right cortex. Give them a little shake. Excellent. And the amygdala, if you could just give that little rattle. Excellent. Well done. Good. Now, you will have found that last exercise absolutely impossible. And the reason that you found it impossible is that your brain is the thing that you used to think about the things that you were thinking about with. And so every time you're thinking about anything, you're thinking about it with your brain. Therefore, you lack any objectivity about thinking about your brain. Now, if we were thinking about uh, you know, our own brain, then it's impossible to be measured about that. It's impossible to actually engage with the brain itself as an organism because we have no separate control. We are using itself to think about itself. And if you think about objectivity, uh, you know, in business we have lots of harsh categories, don't we? Where we say, well, there's no way this business is going to be objective because, you know, how can they possibly improve themselves from the inside? We need to get some expensive management consultants to come in and then change the business because they'll have fresh eyes to see what's going on. Now, tonight I'm inviting you to be management consultants for your own brain. Some of you need it. <laughs> I certainly do. We need to manage uh, our minds, but we have to do that in a way uh, which isn't as clear, isn't as direct as wiggling our toes. I want to tell you this, that it's both difficult to be objective about your brain, but it's also helpful and potentially healing to be thinking about your thinking a lot more than you have done up to now. How many of you go to a gym, just put your hands up, or exercise regularly? Good, about a half, maybe a third. Excellent. How many people think about healthy eating quite regularly, what you're taking on board? Okay, three quarters. That's good. So you're thinking about your bodies, and you're thinking about how, what you're ingesting and how you're supporting yourself, but you aren't necessarily thinking about your thinking. How many of you think about your thinking regularly? Okay, a few people. How many people find themselves being frustrated by their thinking? Quite a lot of you. Excellent. Okay. So you might be frustrated by your thinking. Some of you are thinking about your thinking, but maybe you're not tuning your thinking. You're not exercising your thinking like you are exercising your body. And I'm talking as a Christian here. We also exercise ourselves spiritually uh, in the context of church and relationship within the Christian walk. So we exercise maybe physically and we exercise spiritually, but very few of us actually exercise mentally. Many of us will have said things like, I'm just a worrier. Have you heard that said about you? Or have you said that about someone else? You're just a worrier. So what we've said there is that it's an extremely hard, an extremely concrete frame within which you live. Imagine if you were categorized in any other way. 
Imagine someone said to you, you're just poor and you always will be. How do you feel about that? Feel angry? Feel like that's unjust? Feel that's like putting a lid on your life and saying you're not going to go anywhere? Or if someone said, you're stupid, you're going to take that on the chin and just go, yeah, you know what? I am. I'm going to wear a t-shirt saying I'm stupid for the rest of my life. I'm never going to change. I'm just going to be stupid. Now, how do you feel about those categories? They make me feel angry and they should make you feel angry too. Because actually when someone says to you, oh, you're just a warrior, or when you say to yourself, oh, I'm just a warrior and that's the way I am, that's the sort of lid that you're putting on your life. You're saying, this is the way that I am and I'm not going to change. And the reason that you don't believe that you can change is because you're struggling with that idea about being objective about your own thinking, about thinking about your thinking or even tuning your thinking to work in a new way. But we actually believe that it's possible to see a difference, to make a change in the way that we think. Again, as a Christian, when I read the Bible, I, I read many things that show me that change is possible. Sometimes people say a leper can't change their spots. That might be true about a leopard, but I do believe that God's created humankind with a propensity to change. In fact, many people have said uh, to change is to live. And I believe that that's true on a spiritual level, that to change is to live. And that actually we've been called to be transformed. And we've been called to see the, the renewing of our minds, if you like, our minds to be made new and to think in new ways. So we're going to try and do a bit of that tonight. And um, I hope that you find this, um, this journey a helpful one. Right. I want you to imagine that you're driving. And as you're driving, do I need to press any arrow keys here, guys? Am I? Ah, here we are. I want you to imagine you're driving, and you have a windscreen on your car. How many people have a car who drove here tonight? Shame on you, should have walked, it's not that far. So as you're driving along, you're looking at the windscreen of your, uh, you're looking at the windscreen of your life. And as you're driving along, I tend to think all sorts of things when I'm driving. It's a very creative time for me. So I'm not really concentrating too hard on the road. Obviously, I'm aware of what's going on. Don't worry, I'm a safe driver. I don't look like I'm safe at the moment, but I am a safe driver. This is when I'm steering a boat. That's different. The key thing is I'm driving along, and as I'm driving along, I'm thinking about what's going on, and I might be even engaging with the birds and the bees and the trees, and I might be thinking, wow, what a glorious day. But then imagine this, on the horizon, I see some blue flashing lights. Now, those blue flashing lights are a signal to me. It's that they're a long way off, and I see the traffic begin to slow down. Think about this moment as you're driving. Now, what comes into your head when you see the blue traffic, the blue flashing lights as you're driving the car? So let's do shout out from the crowd. What are you thinking? Accident. Great. That's the first thing we're thinking. Accident. Excellent. Well done, everyone. What else might you be thinking? Speeding fine. Excellent. There is a bad driver. Admission of guilt straight away. A speeding fine. You can always tell the first thought that comes in someone's mind. The next, and something else. Anything else? An ambulance. Okay. An ambulance. Potentially someone's been hurt. Anything else? A fire engine. Okay. So everything that we think about in relation to potential danger. Now, it's interesting, the group here straight away said accident. So what we see on the, on the, on the board behind me here is a various different thoughts, hope, objective thoughts, rational thoughts, spiritual thoughts. But as soon as the blue flashing lights appear on the horizon of our life, they immediately take threat dominance. Threat dominance means that immediately all our focus and intention is gathered around this central issue of the potential accident, the potential speeding fine, the potential fire engine, the potential uh, police. 
Now remember that I'm using the word potential in all of those scenarios because what do you actually know in the rational? What do you actually know for certain? Anything? Well, something stimulated the thoughts. There must be something going on. What do you actually know? That's an assumption, that there are emergency vehicles in the area. Okay, what do you actually know? There's a blue light flashing. Okay, excellent. Now, of course, we've been trained to read certain signals and potential threats. But as we're crawling along, we begin to think all sorts of things associated to the threat at the center of our mind. For example, we might be thinking, oh my goodness, you know, I've not paid my road tax. Potentially there's a police stop there. We begin to get sweaty. The adrenaline starts running. We think, I hope he doesn't look at my car tax when I'm driving by. I need to get that renewed quick. We might be thinking, oh my goodness. Now, maybe someone's been seriously hurt. And then we might have subsequent images of people's bodies and, you know, blood and gore and cars that are broken and all sorts of horrible things. And we might have all sorts of negative and catastrophic thoughts around this particular threat as it appears on the horizon of our minds. But imagine, as we drive past, we see Mr. Whippy, 99 Flake, 129. And there's Mr. Whippy's van. He's got a blue light. Of course, it's illegal, but he's got a blue light on the top to attract a bit of extra custom for people who might be driving by on a hot and sunny day. So you drive past Mr. Whippy. You slow down and go, oh, my goodness, that is a despicable sales tactic. And then you drive on. All of the adrenaline, all of the fear, all of the concern that you had about everything that might have been the case on the side of the road means nothing. The only thing that you knew for certain was that there was a blue flashing light. The assumptions about the danger, they were all yours. Now, what I want you to learn from that illustration is this. The assumptions about the threat belong to you. That actually, the instigation, the spike, the initiator, the thing that pops up in your head to begin the cycle of what we call rumination, that can come from a number of different sources. But worry often comes... You know, gets out of control within you, not within the environment around you. And actually, many of us who struggle with worry on the long term are people who struggle with worry because we have a very vivid imagination and a very heightened sense of concern uh, for danger. And we're going to go into those things in more detail. But you also need to know that not everyone that drove past the Mr. Whippy van felt any genuine concern at all. Many of them carried on looking at the trees and the bees. So worry is both a a personal problem and it's a shared problem. It's a personal problem and it's a shared problem. And tonight it's about understanding that many of the people here sharing the same problem as you, but you yourself have a personal problem that you need to begin to overcome. So I want you to take some responsibility for what you're seeing through the windscreen of your life. Now, there are some people immediately who get quite offended whenever we do a worry talk. And the reason is that they say, Will, you don't know anything about my life. And there are some terrible things going on in my life. And if you had some of the things going on in your life that are going on in my life, then you'd be seriously worried. Well, you know what? I don't doubt that. And I I think it's really, really fundamental that we understand everything tonight within the context of what we call two types, two types of worry. I want to uh, illustrate this to you. They are called solvable and floating. There are two types of worry, solvable and floating. 
I'm wondering if anyone can help me with an illustration before I digest what these things are about what a solvable worry might be. Has anyone got a solvable worry tonight? We can put our collective minds together and give you a resolution. Anyone with a solvable worry? Can anyone think of what a solvable worry might be? Is anyone facing one tomorrow at work? Yes, Gemma. Your boiler is broken. Now, see, I'm worried about your boiler. You've called a plumber to fix your boiler. Okay, good. Gemma's boiler is broken. Now, some of us here immediately might say, Gemma, I hope you've turned off the gas. Because the threat of Gemma's boiler being broken, for us, initiated a spiral of secondary and anxious thoughts, which were things like, oh my goodness, maybe Gemma's boiler's leaking gas, there's electricity in the air, now Gemma's getting really worried she's going to leave any minute, she's going to rush off home, okay? But Gemma's, Gemma's boiler's broken, others are thinking, yeah, great, call the plumber, Gemma, and you know what, that problem will be solved. For some people, uh, there will be a m- much stronger solvable worries and much more anxiety inducing solvable worries uh, so let's have a look at what those might be here we see um, solvable worry it's a worry with constructive outcomes and that's really really important solvable worry uh, is is inviting the plumber to come and be constructive with your boiler it results from concrete problems that are present time orientated, can be measured by finite outcomes and respond to problem solving techniques. Now that all sounds quite technical, but it works like this. Many of you might have serious problems. For example, you might have an aged parent who is, is vulnerable and is becoming increasingly unwell. And you might find yourself very concerned at the moment about whether they should enter into care. Now, there might be acute issues going on uh, in your family life, and you might find yourself consumed by worry about them. On one level, this isn't something that we can dismiss and say, oh, you know what? Don't worry about it. It'll all be all right. Because actually, there's some real concern needed here. At the same time, there's it's possible to apply problem-solving techniques to that situation to work out what is actually best for that person. You yourself might be facing invasive medical treatment. And actually, that is extremely anxiety-provoking. It would be completely unnatural if I said to you tonight, don't worry about it at all. Just forget about it. Everything will be all right. Actually, that medical treatment needs to be brought to bear. You have to see the doctor. The doctor has to uh, examine you. He has to make referrals for you. You might need to go to the hospital and receive certain treatments. And we hope and pray that you make a full recovery. But if you think a solvable problem is a concrete problem in the now that has actual finite outcomes. Many people at the moment are concerned about their jobs. And this is one that we've mentioned several times in some of these seminars. If you've been told at work that you're on a list of people who might potentially lose their job, is it wrong, is it wrong to worry? No, of course, it's absolutely natural to be worried right now about your job. But the reality is, if you've been on that list, you will know sooner or later whether or not you actually have a job or not. Now, you can plan some contingencies. You could try and improve your performance at work in the short term. You could write a nice letter to your boss about how lovely he is and whether he wants to play golf this weekend. You, know, you could try all sorts of things to try and have an impact on the problem. Tonight is not all about solvable worries because in, many of you know how to respond. They work well when you apply problem-solving techniques to them. Tonight is about floating worries. 
You see, the thing is that, that if we look at the underpinning foundations, you can see there, of confidence, assurance, rational, cognitive, and processing. If we think about floating worries, we see something completely different. I'd say to you, of your worry spectrum, how many of your worries were really solvable worries? Think about this. All of you think about how many worries you've had this year. Now, most worriers have around 30 worries a week. You might be worrying about the same thing in different ways. You might be worrying about all sorts of little things in succession. You might have one big theme on the horizon. But there's about 50 of you here, 50 or 60 of you here tonight. Imagine if, if, we, averaged, if we averaged it out. If, if we just said that, that the 50 of you had 10 worries a week. Just, let's re- just reduce it so we're not, we're not getting carried away with ourselves. So say within the group here, there's 50 of us, say, 10 worries a week. So there's 500 worries shared amongst us. How many, has anyone had a worry come true this week that you began worrying about of those 500 worries? Has anyone had one of those worries come true this week? Just be honest if you have. One, two, three, four. Okay, so that's four out of 500 worries have come true for us as a group this week. That's not a bad proportion, you know, in terms of the chance of one of our worries coming true. If you think about that on, a, on an annual setting, that's 500 worries a week, and that's 52 weeks in the year. So how many worries are we having? When's the mathematician going to help me out? What's 50 times, what's 50 times 50? 20, 2,500. 2,500 worries. Let's just call it quits there. 2,500 worries. 2,600 worries, isn't it, if we have 52 weeks? 2,600 worries. How many people have had 30 or more worries come true in the last year? 30 or more of your worries come true in the last year. How many people have had 20 or more of your worries come true in the last year? Thank you, one person. 10 or more worries come true in the last year. Just one person still. Five or more worries come true in the last year. Okay, four or five of us. What we see here is actually that the amount of time that we spend worrying is disproportionate to the amount of worries who actually come true. Someone once said that worry doesn't steal uh, tomorrow of its sorrows. It steals today of its joys. And that's so true for many of us. You've worried about many things, but actually many things have not come to pass. All of the worries we had as we approached that Mr. Whippy van all just disintegrated into nothing when we came past it and realized it was just a blue flashing light. That's all it was. And so I don't want to diminish any of your solvable worries tonight. I don't want to say that you shouldn't be worrying. It would be unfair. It would be unrealistic. But I do want to say to you that you can get more time You can enjoy a more peaceful life. You can enjoy more leisure time. You can be more creative if you can reduce the amount of floating worries that you have. Floating worries, remember, are the ones that are unfounded. Here they are. There are worries with destructive outcomes. They result from undefinable anxieties. They are not time-limited. They have no measurable goals or outcomes, and they do not respond to problem-solving. These are the sort of worries that many of us are consumed with on a day-to-day basis. 
Now, when you look at that list, you think, no, I don't know, that's not me. I don't have worries like that. But just think about it for a moment. Think about the nature of the sort of worries that we really do have. Think about how many of the worries that we had that we began to think about actually never came true. Just choose one of the worries that haven't come true for you in the past week. When you're thinking about that worry again, just, just maybe close your mind for a moment. Bring to mind something you're worry, worrying about this week. Now, identifying that worry again might, might actually distract you from this talk because you might suddenly start ruminating about it again and wondering whether you shouldn't still be worrying about it. How many people feel quite peaceful about that worry at the moment? Like it's faded away? Like it's not really that important anymore? Okay, so over, over half of us have had that worry kind of fade away. When you're thinking about that worry that's kind of faded away, do you think to yourself, why was I worrying about that? Now, that wasn't so bad, or that, that never kind of happened. That never came to pass. So we, we find that our minds are consumed by the activity of worrying, when actually there isn't really a lot of substance there. Our minds are almost saying, don't do nothing, be worried. You know, some, we have a group here on Wednesday nights called Knit and Natter. And uh, knitting is very much like worrying. You can do it all the time whilst you're doing other things. You can produce all sorts of wonderful things when you're knitting, but you can't produce anything wonderful when you're worrying. Now, but it's that whole process of being busy, yet not really being busy. I shouldn't offend any knitters here. You're very busy and industrious people. But you know, the idea, have you found that you've been busy in your mind, yet actually you've got nothing to show for it? And um, sometimes people come into my office and they sit down and they say, well, you know what, I've been worried for the past week that this is going to happen. I know rationally that it's not going to happen. But I just can't let it go. It's like my mind is in the middle of this activity and I just can't stop it. Do you remember those pencils in the 80s? They, I used to love those, those push pencils. They have like eight different colored leads. They're like small with a little plastic bullet bit at the back. Now when you push the lead, the lead pushes out the front and you get the color you want by moving them around to the back. Thank you so much, Charlotte. I didn't prime you for that, but that's love. it's lovely to see that these things are still on sale. So here we've got the brown lead, and um, it's like in our minds. Some of us are always needing to be consumed by worry. So here's the brown lead, and we might be worrying about that right now because that's at the forefront of our consciousness. So we're thinking, oh my goodness, you know, I don't, I don't think people really like me that much. Think about that worry. It's results from undefinable anxieties. I, I can't quite tell why I don't think people really like me that much, but someone crossed the road in front of me the other week, and I, I wasn't sure that it wasn't that they were crossing the road to get away from me. You know, it felt like that. I just started wondering whether people really like me that much. And, and then they're not time-limited. Who's going to tell me when people like me or not? You know, who's going to tell me whether my friendships are genuine or not? You know, when's, when's the point at which everyone says, oh, no, I really do like you. There'll be some census. How many people like Will? Sign up today to tell him categorically that you like him. You know, when's it ever going to happen? They have no measurable goals or outcomes. There's no way of objectively saying everyone likes you. Because even if anyone said they did like you, you might then start worrying that actually they were just saying that because they had to say that or because they were trying to be nice to you and secretly they didn't really like you at all. So there's no measurables to it. And then they don't respond to problem solving. You can't sit down and go, I'm really going to work out whether anyone really likes me or not. Imagine that, sitting there, kind of pondering it, maybe writing a flow chart, see how many people have smiled at you that week. 
Is it really going to prove to you that anyone's really going to like you? See, the reality is when we've ruminated, that means we've thought constantly with no direction about this brown lead. We haven't got a resolution. We've just exhausted ourselves. And then finally, it's like our brains give up. And that brown lead gets pushed into the back of the pencil. And for one little moment, we thought we had peace. Do you know that moment when you wake up in the morning and you've had a really good night's sleep and you kind of you kind of stretch out from under the duvet and there's this weird moment where there's this like absolute peace in your mind and then suddenly you think, what have I been worrying about? Oh yeah! And your day starts and you jump out of bed and you're like, oh, that's it. And then you start worrying and you get in the shower and you start worrying and you go through your day and you start worrying and then you get back into bed and you fall asleep and then you wake up the next day and for five seconds you just had peace in your mind. You see, the next worry, the next day is this. It's the green lead. And then you can start worrying about this thing, whatever this might be. I'm just not sure I've got enough money. It just never feels like I've got enough money. It's not, actually, I really haven't got enough money. It's just, I haven't got enough money generally. I mean, I need, I need some more money. I'm out of control. What's going on? I mean, I'm going to work on my finances. I'm going to improve my budget. But nothing really changes. Because I just have this feeling that this thing isn't really happening for me. You might be thinking, you know, I'm not sure that this relationship is good or I, I can't quite work it out or, or whether or not actually I'm going to be a success in the future. These worries and even smaller, more, more focused worries appear. And then we get through this one and then that goes in the back and then suddenly it's the black lead next and then it's the red lead after that. The most frustrating thing is then six months later you find the brown lead comes back again. You start worrying about the same thing. Who's found that? That for a while the worry didn't seem that serious, but then six months later the worry came back and felt just as strong, if not stronger, and then you start worrying about the same thing. And then you have this weird deja vu worry moment where you're going, I'm sure I've dealt with this, but it just doesn't feel like I've dealt with this. If you think about the underpinning um, foundations of this sort of floating worry, they're really quite destructive. They're low self-esteem, they're anxious, they're intuitive, they're feeler and they're sensitive. So often the people who tend to worry the most have some of these traits within their natural uh, concourse of identity. They, they are sensitive people. How many of you would describe yourself as being emotionally sensitive? How many of you, hands up if you keep your hands up if you think you feel vibes from people? Not in a sort of zen way, but you just get a sense for whether or not they're in a good place. Most of you, yeah, great. How many of you sort of are feelings-orientated people and you'd say things like, I feel this or I feel that? How many of you are sure about your feelings? Quite a lot of you. So what we tend to find is that people with, who developed problem-worry issues have nice personality traits. Rob, who I work with, I'm sure he won't mind me saying this, he's the loveliest guy you'll ever meet. But he has a really, really strong, rational mind. You have to if you're a psychiatrist, I think. There's too much flux elsewhere in your life. You have to like keep it down the line. But he's just not a worrier. He just is very practical, very straight down the line. And if you're worrying, you'll just say, don't be silly. You're like going, ooh, yeah, I know you're right, but ah, can you not feel the vibes? You know, can you not feel that sense of worry? I feel that worry. There's a personality type we describe as called the emotionally sensitive personality type as actually a sort of typology. And me and Rob have thought for a long time that Myers-Briggs has missed a characteristic in the actual fourfold personality type uh, of her categorization. Now, there's actually an N type, the neurotic type. I know it doesn't, it's not a label we like to carry, 
but there's a positive neurotic typology which actually is the sort of in the nature, in the makeup of very caring, very supportive, very pastoral people. I don't think it's a bad thing. I'm a slightly neurotic person. I have a strong, a strong leaning towards caring, towards people, towards sensitivity, towards pastoral nature. You know, that's my leaning as a person. I don't want to eradicate that. I just don't want to be tied down by being worried all the time. I want to use the gifts that I believe as a Christian God has given me to bless other people rather than be consumed by this kind of internal narrative. Maybe that you do too. Think about this underpinning foundation. There's two things, and I want you to use this uh, uh, as you walk away from tonight. I, you choose whichever one you will. They are gnats and ants. They're negative automatic thoughts or automatic negative thoughts. You can choose either. Choose whichever one you remember best. When a threat pops into your, uh, the windscreen of your mind, it pops up and it initiates a spiral of thinking. So when you see the blue light or the threat dominance, it begins a stream of negative automatic thoughts or automatic negative thoughts, one or the other. Now remember that I said your response to the blue light was your response. It wasn't actually what was going on. So whenever you experience a threat, and you will experience threats every day, your stream response will be a a rolling program of automatic negative thoughts that respond to the spike that you've experienced. So, for example, if I sense or hear the word spider in the room, imagine, any arachnophobes here? I'm not mad on spiders, but a couple of arachnophobes, thank you. Now, I don't want to put anyone off, obviously, so apologies for this analogy if it comes too close to the bone. People who tend to be what we call threat-sensitive in particular spheres of life, will actually subconsciously be aware of anything that is pertinent to their particular area of concern. So, for example, if you are naturally afraid of spiders, any theme or anything that identifies, no matter how kind of vicarious the link, two spiders will initiate a cycle of scanning the periphery for potential danger. So if I say the word spider in the room, I might say, I'm going to um, use a spidergram tonight in my, um, in my talk, and that will illustrate a couple of points to you. Now, I've used the word spidergram, but the arachnophobes here are already laughing nervously because they are already rolling through a program of negative automatic thoughts in their mind relating to the word spidergram. And they are spider, tarantula, arachnophobia, and other thoughts, and I'm not going to illiterate any further, or else they will actually leave. The thing is, for you personally, that's not your worry theme. So you don't mind. You're fine about that. But for them, the mind begins a rotation of all these sort of negative automatic thoughts. And ultimately, they tend to come into a final destination. And that is terminus downfall. And that might actually be an image, an idea, a picture of them having spiders actually on them or biting them or somehow them dying as a result of a spider bite. It's amazing how people can do what we call catastrophizing, When they've experienced a negative threat, they've begun to go through a cycle of negative automatic thoughts, they lead them to a final destination, terminus potential downfall, and then they feel exhausted. Now, it might take them an hour to do that, it might take them three weeks to do that, but the cycle is nearly always the same. Interestingly, when they reach the final destination, which is always the most catastrophic possibility on the horizon, they normally feel thoroughly exhausted and they're ready to give up the worry and move on to something new. All of you will have certain sensitivities 
where you have a threat kind of imprinted on your subconscious. Areas or themes which you're particularly sensitive to. If you, for example, feel a slightly low in self-esteem, it might be friendship issues. And some people, have, as I illustrated earlier with my own example, some people sense very, very strongly that they're either liked or not liked. You'll notice if you're one of these people, you generally say to people things like, are you all right with me? Have I, have I done anything to upset you? And then your friend will say, no, um, I'm, I'm, no, it's fine. And they'll look at you quizzically. Okay? So that is a common one. And actually what's often happened is a visual or physical clue has been given to the person who worries about relationship and they've received that clue and they've begun the process of rumination. So for example, I, I did this as, uh, within the congregation a while ago, a couple of years ago in fact. I looked around and someone who suffered from this particular issue saw me looking around and thought that I glanced at them and then passed them without acknowledging them. And they'd attempted to kind of wave or smile or, or, or gain my connection. I hadn't even seen them. But a couple of weeks later, they came back to me and said, you know, I know you've got the hump with me. And, uh, and I said to them, I'm, I'm, I'm really sorry, I don't know what you mean. They said, you know what, a couple of weeks ago, you looked at me in church and you just blanked me. And I was like smiling and waving at you. And I said, you know what, I'm really sorry, but I didn't even see you. I was just literally looking around for something specific. Now, if you struggle in that way, your threat uh, dominance, if you like, is tuned to rejection. And as a result, as soon as you experience any clue that links you to rejection, you begin the cycle of ruminating about it and all the possibilities of that, what that might mean. Does everyone understand where I'm coming to with this? Okay. So, if we know ourselves, we can begin to identify which threats, if you like, we are most sensitive to. And surely that's got to be one of the best things we can begin to do in terms of recovery. Because as soon as we know what things we react or respond to strongly, we can begin to change our internal narrative and ask ourselves uh, some new questions. Now what I'd like you to do with a neighbour, and you can be as lightweight or as heavyweight as you want to do with this, if you wouldn't mind, and anyone with social anxiety or anyone who feels uncomfortable, please don't feel the need to engage. It's just to take a couple of minutes to say, you know what, a few of the themes or a few of the threats that I realize I'm sensitive to are X, Y, or Z. Now, you could say I'm frightened of X, Y, or Z. That's easier and less personal. Or you could say I'm generally sensitive to issues of you know, family rejection, you know, I'm of being unsuccessful, of X, Y, or Z. You know, you know what the themes are. So let's just turn to a neighbor, have a little chat about this. If you feel thoroughly uncomfortable, just say how it's going on at the moment. Introduce yourself, obviously, first.
Just one more minute. Let's just take one more minute. Okay, let's come back together, and I want to just ask you if you wouldn't mind to, anyone has any themes that they can throw out, they feel comfortable? Anyone want to shout out any themes, just shout them out, you won't know whether they've come from you or your neighbour, so. (laughs) Anyone want to shout out any themes? Sudden loss of relationship, a very common one, thank you. Help her out, please, just otherwise... Finance. What other people think of you? Yeah, really common one. Others. That you're a failure. Okay, fear or fear or failure generally. Any others? Sorry. That someone's upset with you. Okay, great. Thank you. We're missing some pretty big categories. That are very common. Health is the one I was thinking about. Health fears are really, really common and often unfounded. I'll tell you more about that in a moment. Yes, any others? Losing control. That's a really, really important one. Again, a, quite a common one. Any other, any other themes? Any other specific fears, phobias? Okay, yeah, fear of, fear of your around safety issues, kind of fear of being mugged, fear of being violated in some way, fear of darkness, fear of, uh, of, of being alone, those, those different fears specifically. Uh, being seen as being stupid, yeah, really, another really, really important one, self-esteem related. Any others? I think that's quite a good, that's quite a good spread there. Um, let me just talk for a moment about uh, this in relationship to dealing with uncertainty. And I think this piece of teaching is probably the most important thing uh, that you will hear tonight as a foundation for any, any work that you're going to do personally in terms of improving your uh, experience of worry. It's, it appears to me very clearly that in the 21st century, we've become intolerant of, of uncertainty. Now, Joe, just come up here for a minute. Now, I've, I've asked Joe to come up here um, just to illustrate a point. Now, Joe's come up here and she's standing on my stage at the moment. Are you feeling secure, Joe? Not at the moment, no. Okay, you think <laughs> I'm going to do something terrible. But you, you're relatively confident in the fact that you're standing here on the stage next to me. Yeah. So, if I told you this stage was actually hollow, how do you feel about that? You're on it, so I feel a little bit more. So, I'm standing on it, so it's okay. If I told you there were trap doors in this stage, how would you feel? A little less confident. A little less confident, but you're still happy to carry on standing there? Yeah. Okay, good. Because I'm going I'm to prove to you just that there are trapdoors. Here's a trapdoor. It's just, it's just next to you. Yeah. Are you happy about that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're happy about, you're happy about staying on the stage whilst there's a trapdoor next to you. So your, your level of uncertainty about the security of this stage is relatively minimal right now. Yeah. You're not feeling at all anxious. No. If I said that there was a, another trapdoor that I installed just below, below your feet and I've got a button here that I can press which makes you descend onto the first, onto the ground floor of the building. How do, how do you feel at the moment? A little less comfortable. But you're quite sure that I haven't actually done that? Yes. So you're okay? Yes. 
Excellent. Thank you. Give him a round of applause. Take a seat. Now, what I want to point out by that, just that encounter with Joe was the fact that actually, despite my best efforts of trying to make her feel disconcerted, she was happy to deal with the uncertainty of whether or not this stage was safe for her to stand on. So she, she was relatively certain it was okay. But you see, this is measurable. So she can come and stand on this stage, and she can stamp on it, and she sees me standing on it, so she knows it's relatively secure. And even though I said that I'd installed the trapdoor, she was still kind of, you know, cautiously optimistic that I hadn't, and that she was going to be okay in the end. The trouble that we, many of us will find in life is that actually we cannot be sure, we cannot test any of the things that we are uncertain about, yet we want to be absolutely certain. We want to be certain about everything in life, like Joe could be certain-ish about the strength of this stage. But all of the themes and the thoughts we've been having tonight are in topic areas that we cannot be certain about. Let's use health as an example. Now, some of you are struggling with chronic illness at the moment. I'm aware of that. And actually, I don't want to kind of draw you into this discussion so much because for, for some of you, ongoing treatment has its own statement of concern. What I'm talking to here really are, that's a solvable worry, by the way, not a floating one. What I want to talk to is the general population of neurotic uh, health warriors, of which there are many. Uh, I met a young man in central London who had come to see me because he was struggling with chronic anxiety, and his chronic anxiety was all orientated around health. And he said to me, well, I'm terrified that I've got HIV AIDS. And I, and I was quite worried, and I didn't know him very well at that time, so I said, well, you know, what's your sexual history? transpired that he was a virgin. And I said, okay, well, that's, that's interesting. You're a drug user? He said, no, 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 not at all. I said, well, how, how do you believe that you might have contracted this disease? He said, oh, I, I don't know, but I just feel like I might have it. And I said, okay, um, uh, you know, what, any symptoms? He said, well, I've just been feeling generally tired and unwell recently, and I've, I've had bleeding gums. And I looked it up on the internet, and apparently that's, uh, you know, there's some of the symptoms. And so he began to worry about it. And, and I said to him, have you had anything like this before? He said, yeah, I thought I had malaria once. I said, anything else? He said, yeah, hepatitis. And we went back through a list which went right down to bubonic plague, which I thought was eradicated in the sort of 16th century or something, or even earlier. So he had a list as long as his arm of all sorts of different infectious diseases that he could potentially have caught which would bring an end to his life. Yet he hadn't contracted any of them. What he had done is he'd been Googling symptoms for various innocuous things all the time and found all sorts of potential disasters that might have happened to him. Hands up, people who've searched webmed.com or any associated uh, websites to find out whether or not they've got the worst possible disease. Now, I've got my, I've got my hand up. No one else is going to confess that they might have been on the Internet searching to see whether they're going to be okay or not. Now, when we search the Internet for Internet illnesses, they always tell us, the worst thing that we might have. Why? Because they're legally obliged to. If you went on an on a internet website and you typed in some, some kind of diagnose me details, any of the symptoms that you suggested, if they listed in accordance with, with any catastrophic and life-threatening illnesses, it's their duty to list that illness in priority. So you actually go to your GP to have that clarified. If they didn't list it and they actually did have that sort of disorder, of course they'd be liable for not releasing that information to you. So when you go on an internet website to find out whether you're ill or not, it's always going to tell you that you're going to die. Because it wants you to go to your GP to check that you're not going to die. And so that's why doctors get totally overwhelmed by people saying, I've been on the internet, the first three words they really don't want to hear. I've been on the internet and... 
if we have health anxiety, ultimately we're worrying about life and death issues. And that threat sensitivity means we might always be scanning our body and our mind for any potential threat. When there is a heart attack or when there is a, a particular stroke or a, um, a fit featured on Coronation Street, apparently, statistically, inquiries about that particular disorder massively increase in local GP surgeries. So everyone suddenly goes, oh, I've had headaches too. And they go into the doctor's surgery and say, I've been having headaches. I saw on Coronation Street someone had a stroke. And I think, I'm having a stroke. And then the doctor says, I think you might be dehydrated. I think, when did you last have a glass of water? Okay, well, you know, you're dehydrated. You need some aspirin. That's it. All of these different anxiety issues, all these worry issues, tend to build towards a final kind of destination negativity. They all build the fear, and actually it's very, very hard to overcome them. If we want to overcome worry, we have to learn to tolerate uncertainty. We have to be able to say, you know what, I might get ill. That's true. You can't mitigate that. But actually, I'm actually probably quite well at the moment. You know, everyone who went on, on, on that terrible disaster recently and went on that cruise ship, you know, they, they bought into an idea, as we all do, that actually no, no, no ship's going to sink in the 21st century. But actually, you cannot make an unsinkable ship. The sea can consume all things. We have to cope with the uncertainty that every activity has its own associated danger. The news re reporter was saying, you know, so we want to build an invincible ship in the 21st century. I was thinking, you know what? We can't eradicate uncertainty from life. We have to live life with a measure of uncertainty. Every time we do anything in life, we encounter a level of uncertainty. And that's true in relationships too. You know, we cannot be known and loved by everyone. We cannot be mi not misunderstood by everyone. You know, we cannot engage with any job without the potential of downfall, without the potential of false accusation, without the potential of fallout, without the potential of conflict, without the potential of losing control. Actually, we have to learn to tolerate uncertainty. I always say that I would rather be burgled than go back to my house to check that the door is locked. My wife doesn't like this, you can imagine. She doesn't like this. Because of my anxiety disorder, which I'm, obviously you can see I'm fully functioning, but because of the anxiety disorder that I have, I know that it would be easy for me to fall into cycles of going and checking things and trying to make sure that I'm certain about everything. But even when I sense an urge within me to go and check that I've actually locked the door, I refuse to do it. I think to myself, I want to choose life. I don't want to choose not being trapped. I'd rather someone help themselves to all of the goods in my house and I lived freely than I went back and checked and that became some sort of habit that began to rule me. Lou really doesn't like it. <laughs> you can understand why, as I say. But I'm not going to check because I refuse to fall into a cycle which will inhibit my life. I'm choosing to live free, no matter how strong the sense of threat I'm experiencing. When we think about uh, the actual nature of fear itself, Am I going forward here? Move. We tend to overestimate threats. And I use this uh, acrostic. I think it's a helpful one. Threats that appear often appear as fear, false evidence appearing real. 
for many of us, we, do, and we work with overestimating the threats that we're experiencing. Remember the Mr. Whippy blue light? We overestimate the threats that we're perceiving in our mind. So fear is spelt false evidence appearing real. Every time we encounter fear, because the actual physical and psychological response within us is so powerful, we actually tend to overestimate what might be going on. Imagine this. You're all going into the jungle and you're hearing the rustling of branches above you. Now that's okay because you're on an ornithologist week away in the jungle. And so you quickly whip up your binoculars and you begin to look up to the roof canopy of the trees and there you can see a lesser spotted cockatoo. Okay? So you're looking at it now and you're feeling really happy and relaxed. And imagine you go back into the jungle and this time you hear rustling in the branches. And you fall to your feet, you put your gun on your shoulder, your sights are at the ready, you begin to sweat, all of your adrenaline is flowing because this is a jungle warfare scenario and your life is at stake. The stimulus was exactly the same in both encounters in the jungle, but the response was completely different. And this is the experience of many people when it comes to overestimating threats. For many of you, the arachnid example that I gave earlier was just comedic. You thought, ah, that's quite funny. You were like the ornithologist. But for others of you, this was like a warfare experience. Drop to the floor, your sights were at the ready, your adrenal system was all primed and ready to go, and you were tense. You began to think, where is this threat coming from? For all of us, depending on our threat sensitivity, depending on the way in which we're tuned, that acrostic will be true. Your body is operating and your mind are operating effectively, but they're operating inappropriately. When it comes to worry, we tend to perceive and overestimate the nature of threat, and actually we can moderate the threat and be more real with ourselves about our own weaknesses. So if we invert it, how many people like sweets? I like sweets a lot. And uh, around Christmas time, I was down at the Natural History Museum with my daughter, and there was a, a Swiss chalet of sweets. It was like a, a little Swiss chalet there outside, filled with sweets. It was amazing. And I saw it, and I needed it. I just wanted it. I just was drawn to the red and yellow candy canes and the, and the really long kind of strips of marshmallow and, and all those lovely bonbons. I just, I wanted it. You know, it, 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 I had an urge to go towards it and to purchase at copious expense all sorts of items. The thing was this, I could moderate my desire by the fact that I'm a sucker for sweets. I could say to myself, well, you know what, someone like you would like that because you love sweets. But you don't need the sweets. Walk away from the sweets. Okay, just one long marshmallow strip. But, um, but that was enough to satiate my desire for sweets. You, know, you, can, you can moderate yourself in accordance with how you know you're primed. Another person might have been able to walk past that Swiss chalet because they don't like sweets. They're not interested in sweets. But I am. When it comes to worry, it works the same way. When you see something that initiates a threat response in you, when you see a threat on the horizon of your mind, when you begin the nat or ant process of automatic negative thoughts responding to that threat, <clears throat> you can choose to walk away on the basis that someone like you is primed for a limbic system reaction when they encounter a particular thing on their horizon. So you could say someone like me would be worried if they encountered that sort of an idea, because I'm primed for that. So, for example, the person who's worried that they might not be liked, 
when they look around and they think someone's blanked them, they could do something brand new with their thinking, which we're going to come into next. There are three treatment approaches which you can use to overcome worry on a regular basis. And the more you use these worry, these worry approaches, the more effective you become and the more automatic they become. And for all of you, what I would want from this evening is that you have more time in your life to do the things that you enjoy. That you have more of those moments when you wake up in the morning and you pull back the duvet and you're like, oh, I feel so peaceful today, but that doesn't stop there. It carries on throughout the whole day. You're thinking that can't happen to you, but it can. The bronze medallion response is what we call thought record charts. Now, you can download these for free on our website. You can just help yourself. But the simple process is that actually you begin this process of overcoming worry by identifying what the threats are. And there's a, 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 on a thought record chart, it starts by the threat itself. Then it asks questions about uh, your response to the threat. And then it asks you for potential or alternative ideas around the threat. Now, if you use a thought record chart for one month, I can promise you that your own thinking will be completely transformed. The reason for this is, how many of you remember all the thoughts that you had yesterday? 50% of the thoughts you had yesterday? One or two of the thoughts that you had yesterday? Most people can't remember what they thought this morning, let alone what they thought yesterday. But imagine if you'd written down what you thought yesterday. And then you got a chance to look back at it again and go, oh my goodness, yesterday I thought this. You would be amazed over the course of one month how many of the same troubling thoughts you actually have. You'd be amazed at the themes that appear when you begin to write down troubling thoughts on a daily basis. You can actually identify from that chart, if you're not already sure, what your theme of sensitivities actually are. You can actually say, I've got five thoughts here about friendship relationships breaking down. I've got nine thoughts here about financial problems and financial concerns that are ungrounded. I've got 27 different thoughts about health anxieties of different types. It's amazing when we write these things down, we begin to know ourselves in a new and powerful way. I really advocate the use of writing these down or trialing them for one month. Why do I say one month? Wouldn't it be a nightmare if you had to spend your whole life writing down all your thoughts? How depressing that would be. How boring and what an imposition on your freedom. Thought record charts aren't the way to live your life. They're a way to understand yourself. So just moving on to the next uh, opportunity uh, to improve your world. That's called making new contemplation. Present, uh, sorry, making new appraisals. Making new appraisals as simple as this. Right, imagine this. Disco Dave. He's got his, uh, John, he's got his John Travolta spandex on. He's gone to the discotheque. And here he is at the disco, and he begins, he sees his friends are on the dance floor, he walks out proudly, and he begins to throw down some top dance moves. He's watched Saturday Night Night Fever a couple of days before, and he's really in the groove. But just as he starts to dance, all his friends begin to laugh. Now immediately, that threat experience prompted a whole stream of automatic negative thoughts in his mind. He began to think, is my spandex too tight? Were my moves not quite good enough? Are they laughing at me? Are my friendship relationships compromised? And suddenly, his whole sensitivity to being liked and affirmed by his friends is really high on his own emotional radar. So he turns around, he walks off the dance floor, he stands at the bar, he buys a drink, he stays there all night and begins to ruminate about how his friends have rejected him and how he's never going to dance again. He goes home feeling terribly worried and terribly depressed. 
Now imagine this exactly the same scenario. Disco Dave, he's got his spandex on, he goes out to the dance floor, he throws down some fantastic moves. Then his friends start laughing. He retracts to the bar, but then he decides he's going to start making some new appraisals. So Disco Dave thinks, they were laughing at me. That's his first thought, and that's the thought that he believes most of all. But his second thought is, maybe they weren't laughing at me. Maybe someone fell over behind me and they were laughing at that person, but I thought they were laughing at me. Now, he doesn't believe that at the moment, but it's a possibility. It's a, it's a 1% possibility. Then he thinks another new appraisal. Maybe they were laughing at me, but in a kind of, you're my friend, you're lots of fun, you're dancing in a kind of crazy way. Ah, that's quite possible, because they are my friends, and there's a lot of evidence for that. And also, if I turn the music off, everyone would look like idiots. Now, there's a 25% possibility that that's true. So he thinks about that a bit more, and he begins to believe that a bit more. Then he has a third new appraisal. He says, maybe it's just my spandex is just too sparkly. And it's kind of overwhelming them with how out of town I've gone tonight. And he looks at his spandex and he thinks, yeah, it's pretty crazy. John Travolta wore this and now I'm wearing it in the 21st century. So he kind of thinks, there's a reality that I'm laughing at what I'm wearing, but what I'm wearing is meant to induce laughter. There's a 50% probability that that's the case. Now, having made four or five different new appraisals, he starts feeling much less certain about what he originally believed, which was that his friends didn't like him and that they were laughing at him and humiliating him. Now, then he decides to do a social experiment, which is actually, I'm going to go back out onto the dance floor and start dancing again. I'll see what sort of reaction I get this time. If it's the same, I'm going to go home. But if they welcome me and if we start having fun, I'm going to stay. So he goes back out on the dance floor, starts throwing down some moves. His friend said, hey, why did you go to the bar? So he says, oh, I just took a quick break. He says, oh, great. So they carry on dancing. He dances the whole night. He's completely exhausted. He goes home feeling fantastic. And they're all laughing all the time. Now, what did he find out was true by doing that? The new appraisals helped him to get back onto the dance floor. The social experiment on the dance floor helped him to realize that he'd massively overestimated the threat. That actually he'd hugely overestimated what his friends were doing. Sure, in reality, his friends were laughing, but they were laughing with him in a kind of, here's Disco Dave throwing down some dance moves with this white spangly suit on. Who wouldn't laugh? But not laughing because they didn't like him, laughing because they loved him, laughing because they were having fun on the dance floor, laughing because that was the joy that they were all celebrating together. Disco Dave felt affirmed in his friendships. He went home feeling really good. Next week, he goes back and he does the same thing. He throws down some big moves on the dance floor, feeling even more confident that he's the best dancer that ever lived. The story is this. Even if you don't believe the new appraisals that you're making, by making you, you change your neurochemistry. You change the way in which your, your mind is working. In fact, you change the way in which the neurons are rooted around your brain. Every time you keep thinking the same negative thought, you cut a groove in your mind like an old gramophone record and you play it around and around and around and around again. But if you start thinking new thoughts, making new appraisals, you actually change the way that you actually physically think. And therefore you think new, more realistic thoughts. Have you ever shared one of your thoughts with someone else in order to get affirmation and reassurance? And them saying, don't be ridiculous, that is so unlikely and you still don't feel any better. That's because you yourself aren't taking responsibility for making new appraisals. Remember, it's doing them that changes your brain, not believing them. The more you do, the more believable they become, and the less strong the original threat became. So if someone's terrified, we'll go back to the arachnids again. Sorry about this, arachnophobes. 
If I say there's a spider in the room, the arachnophobes might start getting very, very panicky on the basis of what I think. They might take what I've said as gospel truth. But actually, when they start making new appraisals, their first reaction would be to run out of the door. But if they were going to make new appraisals, they might say something like, Will's doing a talk about worry. He's saying this for effect. They might not believe that, but they've made a new appraisal. Then they might say, well, there are only sort of about five different sorts of undangerous spider in the UK anyway. Am I really worried about encountering any of those? Well, not really. So that's okay. Well, I am a bit worried, but it's still weakening the original thoughts. When I'm thinking about a spider, and Will said there's a spider in the room, there might be the tiniest little, kind of tiny, puny little spider that ever was born in the room. That might be the spider he's thinking about. Now, they might not believe that, but actually begins to weaken their original thought of this humongous great tarantula with fangs, which was their first thought when I said the word spider. Do you see how by using new appraisals, they weaken the original thought and reduce the, 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 the threat itself? Therefore, they feel more confident to stay seated where they're seated. And you see the experiment work because they're still all sitting down. Making new appraisals changes the way you think and can release a huge amount of time and freedom into your life. The third approach here I just want to mention, because you guys need a break, we're going to be winding up any minute now, is what we call present contemplation. Now, this tool is probably the most powerful tool available to psychologists today. It also comes under the banner of what's known as mindfulness, the reason that me and Rob have written a new tool, if you like, called Present Contemplation is because this tool has its roots in the Christian tradition rather than in the Buddhist tradition, where mindfulness has it, its roots. The actual psychology behind it is exactly the same, and it's thoroughly safe. And I would say to you, if you're using mindfulness under a, a, a religion-neutral clinical approach, continue to do that. But you, can, you might be able to bring things in from, from Present Contemplation, which will help you further. Jesus' teaching on watchfulness uh, is the root of this particular teaching. He says, be watchful. And the ability, if you like, to separate ourselves from threats and from challenges and observe them in our mind is the core of this particular work, the work of present contemplation. It's something that the, our Christian forefathers used in the desert for many, many hundreds of years. And it's something which, which Paul encourages us to in Colossians when he asks us to pray uh, thankfully uh, and watchfully. Imagine that a threat popped into your mind. This is completely different to making new appraisals, by the way. Imagine that that threat popped into your mind. Imagine it's just the blue light threat that we talked about at the very beginning of this evening's talk. Now, before you've begun a stream of any negative automatic thoughts you've immediately initiated a stop moment in your mind. You've identified that you potentially could go round a whole nasty cycle of negative, automatic, and anxiety-inducing thoughts for the next half an hour until you finally crawl past this blue flashing light. Imagine instead if you encapsulated that blue flashing light in your mind, if you actually kind of held it in a thought bubble, separated from your emotional system, but connected to your cognitive, your mindful system. You actually isolated and said, here's an interesting intervention in my mind, a blue flashing light. I'm just going to hold it there. I'm going to allow it to be there. I'm not going to try and rush it away from my mind. I'm going to allow it to be present in my mind at this time. You just leave it. Now, that sounds really strange. If you don't rush it away... It will just stay there for as long as your mind seeks to hold it there. You can hold it there in this thought bubble 
and allow it to remain there for as long as you like. Over time, it will begin to fade and disappear of its own volition. You can always come back to it and engage with it more strongly later. But actually, by encapsulating it, by allowing it to be in your mind, to be present in your own self, and to be contemplating this particular item without sticking your fingers into it and beginning to play around with it and manipulate it, you can actually be worry-free. Now, if we were going to do this with the blue flashing light, we'd be driving along, and the narrative in my mind would go something like this. Driving along, birds and bees, birds and trees, blue flashing light. Oh, my goodness, there's, there's been a... Hold on a minute. There's a blue flashing light. Just going to hold it there in my mind. Carry on driving. I can still see a blue flashing light in my mind. I can see one on the horizon. Could mean all sorts of things. Just going to let it be there. Feeling quite a lot of anxiety right now. I feel like I want to engage with the blue flashing light, but I'm not going to engage with it. I'm going to wait till I've passed it, and then I'm going to decide what it is when I get there. Now, it's actually possible to do this. It's not possible to do this if you try and neutralize the blue flashing light. Thought suppression does not work, people. No one think about the pink elephant right now. Do not think about the pink elephant. Stop it. I know that you're thinking about the pink elephant. I told you not to think about that pink elephant. Stop thinking about it. So we cannot suppress our thoughts. Some people are still thinking about this. I can tell you, you're still thinking about this. Because I said you couldn't think about it, but now you're thinking about it all the time. You know what? Tonight you're going to think about that, that pink elephant so many times, you're going to be so annoyed with me. I'm not going to tell you not to think about it because that would, that would free you from its clutches, but I'm just going to leave it with you. So you know that thought suppression does not work. If you try and push something out of your mind, it will come back to haunt you time and time again, which is why many of you struggle with themes of worry because you've been trying to suppress those things for so long. Your body is tuned to react as soon as those danger lights appear on your horizon. Imagine if you told someone that something was terribly dangerous and that if they ever saw that thing, they need to run away from that thing. As soon as they saw that thing, they're going to run straight away. They're not going to think about it. They're trained to run away from that thing. You are all trained to run away from certain things. Thought suppression doesn't work. But allow the thought, allow it to be there. Don't engage with it actively. Don't let it run away with itself. Just let it be in the consciousness of your mind and hold it there. It will gradually become disempowered to the point where it is no longer important. Now, for beginners, I say, hold it there just for 15 minutes before you start engaging with it. That's what we call the capsule technique. Encapsulate it for 15 minutes and say, I'm not going to think about this worry that I've had for 15 minutes. And 15 minutes later, come back to it. Actually do come back to it, otherwise you're just doing thought suppression, which doesn't work. Come back to the thought and tell me, when you've done that experiment, whether or not you think it was as powerful as it was when it first happened. Nearly everyone we find who can use present contemplation just for 15 minutes will find that actually the thought has 20% of the power that it did when it first came into their mind. And very often people think, I, can, I brought the thought back, but I just can't really be bothered to engage with it because it's got no power over me anymore. I just don't feel like it actually has any validity at all. You're not strengthening the thought. You're not making it happen. You're not spiraling down the negative automatic thought route. And therefore, you're not spending time ruminating over and over and over and over and over again about the same thing. Remember, bad things might happen. You can't change those bad things. You can tolerate the uncertainty of what's going on and live free for longer. It's a really, really exciting way of making progress 
I'd love to spend a lot more time on doing it, but I fear that time is running away from us, and I don't want, to, uh, I, I don't want us to uh, finish without an opportunity for questions. I just want to point out a few things, if you would indulge me, uh, from Jesus' own model. Lots of Christians, and this is really a message just for the Christians here tonight, lots of Christians think that Jesus himself was opposed to worrying, as in that he condemned worriers, or that worry was some sort of sin. I just want to point out that the the Matthew chapter 6 passage doesn't actually make that true. That Jesus' teaching on worry is the most liberating and helpful teaching that we can find on release from worry. And Jesus did not respond uh, with a a should, must, or ought, things that we mustn't do to ourselves either. Jesus demonstrates a sort of spectrum of emotions himself, and we are encouraging you as Christian people to have a spectrum of emotion, to allow emotion, but also to to see that in the Matthew chapter 6 message, he also demonstrated the importance of seeking first the kingdom of God and allowing everything else to be added unto you. He says, don't worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow has enough cares of its own. He doesn't say, don't worry about today. Today's not worth worrying about. He actually says, deal with the solvable problems of today. Don't engage with the floating problems of tomorrow. Jesus identifies in the Matthew chapter 6 passage the solvable and the floating. He says, engage in the solvable, but don't engage in the floating. He does not say, do not worry in a categorical sense. He's inviting our trust as we invite him into the center of our lives day to day. So I don't want any worrier here to kind of feel condemned because worrying in itself, condemning you for worrying, if you like, will massively exacerbate your problem. Then you'll begin to worry about the fact that you're even worrying at all and therefore you'll feel even more guilty and ashamed and disconnected. Jesus says, trust in me. He says, don't worry about the floating worries of tomorrow. Today has got enough solvable problems of its own. If you do these things, if you seek first the kingdom of God, if you make me your priority, everything else that you're concerned about, if you like, will be resolved. And here we go, if you like, walking into the future in a trusting and engaged way. I think that's played out with a really important piece of psychology called the circle of security. This is our life. And the top hand is the secure base. The bottom hand is a safe haven. In everything we do, we adventure away from the secure base until our emotional cup is running empty at the apex of this circle, and then we return to the safe haven to have our needs restored, and then we're ready to go again. When I go to the playground with my daughter, she holds onto my hand, she feels very nervous, then she gets bored when she sees the swings, and then she adventures away from my secure base to go and play on the swings and have a really good time. But when the big boys come, her emotional cup runs out, she runs empty, and she runs back to the secure safe haven where I can organize her feelings, encourage her, affirm her, and then build her up so she's ready to adventure away again from the secure base to enjoy another part of the playground. Now, I believe, friends, that this is the way we've been built by God too, that we need to adventure away and enjoy the adventure from the secure base and be restored by returning to him the safe haven and encountering him in fullness. So something nice to end on there in terms of the cycle that we can find security and adventure in life. And actually we can find incredible freedom from worry if we engage in some of these techniques. 
Now, I could obviously run a day-long conference for you about how to employ these techniques more deeply. I do want to say there's an awful lot more free resource and material on the website that you can engage with. And, of course, there is the book there if you'd like to have a look at it. I'd love to field a few questions in closing from the floor. And these might be specific questions or they might be more general questions. If you don't want to ask it, you've got to ask your neighbor to ask it for you. So it looks like it's their problem and not yours. I'm just going to give you just two minutes just to think about what that question might be. And then we're going to uh, engage in these questions before we close tonight. Yes, Brian. There's also a level of worry that people have regarding um, the way that their uh, country, the country is going financially, the way that the world is actually going in terms of nuclear um, threat and, and all the threats of, of um, various um, governments and things like that. And I think, in a sense, for me, um, I can't change what the President of Iran wants to do with his nuclear um, uh, program. And I can't stop him if he wants to put missiles up in the air. And I can't stop him attacking Israel. Um, and I can't control that. But I can control things like my irrational fear of flying, which I occasionally sure. have. And at the end of the day, if I get into a plane and it goes up in the air, there's only one thing you can do, come down safely or not, as the case yeah. may be. And, and therefore, that's not a really rational fear. And I'm just wondering whether, um, in a sense... It's just dismiss all the things we can't actually influence, because I can't yeah. influence Obama or anyone sure. else. And, and the phrase that somebody said was that um, is to have uh, the courage to change the things you can, the serenity to change, the th uh, not to be able to change the things you can't, and the wisdom to know the difference. Yeah, I think. Uh, this, and yeah. I, and I just for me, I think really it's just don't worry about the world. I, I can sort out my own worries and maybe little, little, yeah. let, let, let those that actually are sure. I think, to do that. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think that what I point out is that there's a difference between global concern and individual worry. And the floating worries that we're talking about are very specific. Many of you won't be able to get rid of global concern, and maybe it's appropriate not to get rid of global concern. But if global concern has become a process of initiating kind of deep worries within you, if you become terrified that you're going to die in a nuclear disaster, it's become very, very personal. It's also not possible to necessarily dismiss fears out of hand and so many of them, however irrational they might appear to be, need to be encapsulated in a more cognitive way, in a more specific way, and held in that mindful way, uh, no matter how irrational they might be. And believe me, I've heard some irrational worries out there. You've got to remember that however irrational a worry might be, it doesn't mean it's not a powerful worry. In fact, often the more rational, the more powerful. And the more rational, the more people think, I shouldn't be even thinking something like this, I'm probably going mad which is, again, another worry which starts a whole new cycle of worry. Another question. Any others? Just a couple more. Yeah, Patrick. Is it, is it all not just to do with control? Is it about to do with control? It's, it's, it's a really good question. It's a, it's a more complicated question than it appears to be. 
you know, the, the danger, of course, if we, if we say that worry is all about control is that it, it kind of simplifies what is a, a kind of an automatic response. I'd say that it's human's kind of natural order to, to preserve itself. You know, we, we are a species of success, I believe, as a Christian, primarily because God has willed it, but as a, as, a, as a being, if you like, because we have within us no great physical armor. We haven't got kind of scales and claws. We're actually extremely vulnerable beings. But it's the inbuilt sense within us that we need to protect ourselves, which has led to our success. If you're looking at it from a biological perspective, you know, there's nothing within me as a person that could be to Tyrannosaurus Rex, yet I'm alive and the Tyrannosaurus Rex is dead. He's far more equipped to protect himself than I am, but my mind protects me uh, uh, because it's tuned to do so. So on a level, our desire to protect ourselves and control our circumstances is the initiator of the worry cycle. At the same, by the same token, everyone, whether or not they're a warrior, has that same intuition. And so it's not just about control because everyone expresses the same level of control on a kind of human biological level, but they don't on a psychological level where they might have been damaged by experiences of the past, where their neurochemistry might be out of sync, where they might be struggling from underlying issues. Um, and therefore they might be open to, uh, to sort of stronger worry patterns. And, and I would say that some people, if you are struggling with sleeplessness, with, um, with, with, you know, with poor digestion and diet, if you're suffering from migraine star headaches, tremors, panic attacks, or any of the associated, you should see your GP, because it might well be that you are suffering from a diagnosable worry disorder, like general anxiety disorder, or panic disorder, or, or mild depression, which has similar uh, constructs. But, but for, for those in the worry community, um, often it's a personality driver, the sensitive personality type, mixed with a desire to avoid uncertainty and control the environment. But it's a little bit more sensitive than just being a control freak. I'd say lots of more psychopathic people are control freaks who don't worry, but lots of worriers are less controlling, but they actually succumb more to the worry problem. Joe, you had a question? Yeah, I think you just uh, touched slightly on it. I was just, <clears throat> I think coping with the worry during the day is far more manageable than, than at night. And you touched slightly on some uh, symptoms just a moment ago. But, but what would you recommend for those people that wake up in the middle of the night with the worries and can't sort of switch off from them? Yeah. So it's a really, it's a really good, it's a really important practical question. Um, Sleep hygiene is something that we refer to quite a lot in the book, and again, there's free resources about sleep hygiene. Um, sleep hygiene is not a sort of form of cleaning in your sleep. It's actually a, a process that you will employ to ensure that you get a good night's sleep. And these are simple things like not drinking caffeine after 3 p.m., like having herbal tea like chamomile tea after 6 p.m., like not eating late but trying to eat earlier, like having a uh, hot bath. Uh, in the mid-evening with using kind of you know, lavender oils or things like that will help induce sleepfulness, that you don't watch terrifying movies or stimulating political dramas at 10 o'clock at night, um, that you make sure you've got a comfortable and clean bed, uh, that you've got proper ventilation in your room, that you drink plenty of water before uh, 9 p.m. to make sure you're fully hydrated for the evening, uh, that you don't drink alcoholic drinks late at night, uh, that you make sure all music and technology is turned off, phones are silenced, all of the associated, um, that you put a good but boring book by your bed and that you have a nightlight and that you have an alarm clock which does not shine brightly in your room. Now, all those things sound deeply practical, 
But actually, if you get in a cycle of sleep where actually you're sleeping deeply and you're sleeping well, you're less likely to go for the early morning wakefulness and the worrying hours, which are often between 2 and 5 a.m. And many people tend to to wake between 3 and 4 a.m. if they're worriers or if they're feeling depressed. And there's specific reasons why that is the case from a neurochemical point of view. You can improve the picture by making sure your sleep hygiene is regular and very effective. And many people we meet have a good number of hours sleep. They might still wake early in the morning. If you do wake early in the morning, the first thing that you'll begin to do is to begin that cycle of rumination where you think and think and think and think and think. Now, as soon as you do that, normally the threat has appeared straight away, but you're already 100 miles down the line with the rumination before you've even thought, oh, I'm ruminating, I need to stop, I need to compartmentalize this thought, and I need to use these different techniques. Distraction tends to be the best technique to use at that time in the morning. And I would really suggest this. First thing to do is don't just lie there. Get up. And that sounds like an odd piece of advice, but it's better to get up and fully wake up and then fully go back to sleep than to spend two or three hours just lying there ruminating, tossing and turning and feeling low. Turn the bedside light off. Get up's the first thing. Make yourself a hot and milky drink like Ovaltine or hot chocolate. Sounds crazy. Your husband will think you're crazy, but go and do it anyway. Then return to bed, and if you have a reading light, then try and read your boring but sort of engaging book at that point time of the night. It might feel, again, crazy that you're reading at 3 a.m., but if you have a, a milky drink, hot drink, then you begin to read this book. Actually, often within about 15 to 20 minutes, having had your drink, you'll fall back to sleep again. But it's the distraction technique of having this very fixed routine which will lead you back to sleep. And actually, it's the engagement with the text which will distract your mind from running down the highway of worry and will also send you back to a place of sleepfulness. I say 15 to 20 minutes because that's the capsule technique through distraction. So you're staving off the worry, engaging with the book very, in a very fixed way, by which time the worry that initiated is kind of less powerful. You feel quite sleepy from the drink and then you're ready to go back to sleep. We've seen this work time and again and it can be a real life changer for people. The thing is to have it ready now. So before you go to bed, if you're one of these people, have the mug, have the hot chocolate, have everything ready to go in a line, have the book, have the reading light, and then when you wake up, you go into it almost in automatic mode. The mistake is to wake yourself up too much, start searching around for a mug, trying to find the the hot chocolate, you know, you're getting frustrated, have it all ready to go right away when you go to bed, and then you'll know the routine works, and you'll get back to sleep again. It can be a real life changer for people. It's just the distraction technique. You need the book because without the book, it doesn't work. You just sit there kind of going, oh, my goodness, I've got so many stressy things to think about. You have to actually choose this stuff, which is a good point to make to all of you. This hurts. It's not just free. If you worry, you worry for a reason. You're a worrying type, and we want to release you from that and make you less so and to play to your strengths. So it does hurt to make these changes. And it, you, just like giving up smoking, they make it look easy on the Nicorette adverts. But you still have, it says willpower still necessary or willpower included. You have to really will this to work it. You have to choose to do it to make it happen, okay? So you have to actually say, I'm going to try what Will said in that seminar. I'm going to actually do it. Otherwise, it won't work. It doesn't just mean that you kind of go, oh, I feel like I need to worry. Oh, sack it. I'm going to worry anyway. You know, you've got to actually choose it. You've got to say, no, I'm staying with the book. I'm drinking the drink. I'm going back to sleep. Okay?
Uh, One final question, then we're going to conclude. Any final ones? No, I think we're probably done. I do want to say this as well. Just, I know again, there's some people here who don't normally go to church. I, I honestly believe, firstly, that Jesus came to set the captives free, and that He wants freedom for the people. It says in John 10:10 10, 10, that I've come to give you life and life in all its fullness, and that there's a place for prayer in your experience of worry. And what I would say to all of you, particularly the Christians here, don't let worry, don't let prayer be a new mechanism to deal with worry. Okay. Oh my goodness, I'm going to pray about this whole thing for the next five hours to like disempower it. That's not real prayer, okay? But do invite Jesus into the heart of this stuff. Do say, even if you're not a Christian, do say, Jesus, help me to do this stuff. Help me to do this work. I want to invite you into the center of my worry world. I want to become a non-worrier. I want to reduce the impact of worry in my life. With that in mind, I just I hope you'll indulge me if I just pray for you as we conclude uh, this evening. It'll be lovely to do that if you don't mind. Lord Jesus, I believe that you've come to set captives free, and we pray now tonight together that anyone who's really ensnared by worry, anyone who's trapped by worrying thoughts and worry cycles, would find release and freedom. Pray that uh, none of us would have a sort of red button approach tonight where we can just press that and walk away. Help us all to adopt an approach of work and determination and courage to this. We just pray, Jesus, that you would um, give us boldness, strengthen our resolve, give us a sense of your presence, especially in the moments when we feel most anxious. Help us to choose freedom over bondage. Help us to choose liberation uh, over being tied by the different worry themes that control us. We pray for your power and for your work in our lives tonight, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you very much, everyone, for coming along tonight. If you've got any 